Pastor Xavier Reese and the secret to finding meaning and purpose in life. You see, the will of God is not like an Easter egg hunt. Getting warmer, warm, cold, 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 cold. No, the Bible teaches us that each person who is born again is anointed by the Holy Spirit to be strengthened and enabled to understand the Word of God, to know the will of God. The will of God is revealed in the Word of God. You and I are to study the Word of God because we can know the will of God. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. A good book or movie is full of suspense and the unquenchable quest for victory. But in real life, victory sometimes seems so distant, if obtainable at all. Well, today, Pastor Xavier digs deep into the truths of Scripture, revealing how true triumph is available to all who follow the Lord Jesus. Here he is with today's lesson, Isaiah chapter 42, Cyrus, God's chosen instrument. Prophecy is the unique characteristic that distinguishes the Bible from every other book, be they secular or religious. In the foretelling of the future events, the Bible puts itself at the examination of the whole world to see if it's accurate or it's not. We have before us one of the most amazing prophecies here in our text of Isaiah 45. It is recorded in the Bible. It is the calling of Cyrus, the Persian king, to conquer Babylon. One of the most amazing things, because Babylon is not a world power at this time. Assyria is. It's a joke to even talk about it. And yet, the Bible is his story, and that's what history is, his story. <laughs> so it's no problem for him to tell his story <laughs> before it happens. He's the eternal God. This unfolds for us in a very straightforward manner, and it consists of three elements. Let me read these seven verses for us. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to lose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will I'll gird you, though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so here the record of the call of Cyrus, the Persian king, to conquer Babylon is given to us, and it consists of three elements. First of all, we have the details of the prophecy in verse 1. Secondly, we have the decisive victory of the prophecy in verse 2 and 3. And then thirdly, the deliberate motive for the prophecy is given in verse 4 through 7. 
Let's begin here with the details of the prophecy. It's just one verse, but it's loaded. Notice first, God calls Cyrus his anointed. The authority for the proclamation is given by the phrase, says the Lord, meaning Yahweh. The phrase is found repeatedly throughout the book. You cannot miss it. Over and over and over again. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord says. The phrase is in opposition to all the other false gods of Israel through the entire section. And in chapter 40 to 48, it's really concentrated. Notice the word anointed. The word anointed is used in four ways in the scripture. For the priests, like Aaron in Exodus 29:36, Leviticus 8:12. It's used for the kings of Israel like Saul and David in 1 Samuel 10:1, 2 Samuel 12:7. It's used for the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ. We've seen it in Isaiah 9:1 through 7, 11:1 through 5 and other areas. But here now it's used for Cyrus, the Persian king that God would use to defeat Babylon, a pagan, if you will. See, God chooses who he wills, and whoever he chooses, that's his instrument. You remember back in chapter 10, verse 5? Assyria was the rod of God's wrath to chasten his own people. Now, the verb form with its derivative occurs 140 times, most frequently in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in the historical books, twice in the prophets, here in Isaiah 61.1 and Daniel 9.24. Now, notice God has already mentioned his name in the last verse of the previous chapter. Verse 28 of chapter 44. He says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundations shall be laid. Cyrus means possess thou the furnace from the refining of metals. We know that the persons were pagans. God called him not only his anointed, but look at his shepherd, my shepherd. The phrase that is used for kings and rulers for the kings of Israel. Those who care for the flock, those who are going to benefit the flock. Now God said he would perform all his pleasure. God is the one in control here. And he describes it in a twofold manner. First, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now we know, looking at history, that Jerusalem was built and the temple foundation was laid, Ezra, Nehemiah. Listen, this is hundreds of years before, all right, that he's writing this. Notice secondly, still in verse 1, God declared he would be the one strengthening and sustaining Cyrus in the conquest of Babylon. The phrase, whose right hand I have held is significant in that the traditional thing that a ruler did in Babylon was to take the hand of Bel, his God, in the New Year festival and to affirm the authority of his reign plus the success of his victories. Here God says, I am holding your right hand. I am assuring this victory. 
not a pagan god, not Baal, not Nebo. We'll get into those next chapters. The prophet has mentioned this before. Back in chapter 42, verse 6, he said, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, speaking of Cyrus, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentile. So again, it's not the first time, but now he names them by name. Notice the particulars are mentioned. To subdue nations before him. In fact, history tells that he gained an ally in Babylon. Babylon wasn't the empire of the world then. And he gained an ally of them against Media. Two successive Median armies were sent out against him. And then they, they decided to join forces with him instead. And he walked without opposition into Armenia and won a surprise victory over the Lydians when their horses were frightened by the smell of Persian camels. Coincidence? This is history. This isn't biblical stuff. He says, and lose the armor of kings. The old King James says, lose the loins. <laughs> now we know, as we look into Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar was there in his drunken feast, boasting of his city and all, and taking the vessels of God from the temple and celebrating with them, that the writing on the wall came and said, meanie, meanie, tekel you farson, you've been weighed, you've been found wanting, your number's up, you're dead tonight. And there he was. And it says, when he saw the writing on the wall, it says, his knees smote one against another. <laughs> How specific. To open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Real specific. The Babylonians were so confident in their fortress city that even as the Medo-Persian armies were outside the wall of Babylon, surrounding the kingdom. They were having a drunken feast of such celebration that even the watchmen on the towers were intoxicated. That night, the levee gates were not locked. That night, the river Euphrates was diverted upstream and the men walked under the gate and took the city. Sort of without firing a shot. In fact, the majority of the city they didn't even know it had fallen for days. It was so vast. It had been taken. They were party, they were party animals. Belshazzar was saying, Babylon is impregnable. The army's outside. He's having a blast. He's having a party. She was impregnable. No one could come against her, and rightly so. Her walls were 300 to 350 feet high, 80 to 87 feet thick, 250 towers, 100 feet high, 100 gates of brass, molds, bridges, ferries, underground tunnels, under Euphrates, you name it. Do you realize that out of the Old Testament's 23,210 verses, 6,641 contain predictive material, or translated 28.5%. Out of the New Testament, the verses are 7,914, and out of those, 1,711 
our predictive material, or 21.5%. So the entire Bible is 27% predictive. Almost one-third. It's easy to prove it wrong if it's not prophecy. It's easy to prove wrong if God hasn't spoken. And yet, God always gets an archaeologist, sends them out there when people say, oh, that didn't exist, and they dig up the Heiko's dynasty or the Hittite dynasty or, you know, tablets that prove that Daniel was in Babylon. And, and it's amazing. The Bible teaches us that God knew and chose us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Listen to what he says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his praise by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He could tell the same things to you that he said to Jeremiah. I knew you before you were in your mother's womb. Now, that's the type of God you want to serve. The Bible teaches us that each person who is born again is anointed by the Holy Spirit to be strengthened and enabled to understand the Word of God, to know the will of God. You see, the will of God is not like an Easter egg hunt. Getting warmer. Warm, cold, 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 cold. No. The will of God is revealed in the Word of God. You and I are to study the Word of God because we can know the will of God. No Christian should be saying, well, what is the will of God for my life? There is enough things in the Bible about the will of God to keep you busy for the rest of your life without having to worry about what he hasn't revealed. Listen to Colossians 1, 9 through 12. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, in other words, their salvation, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of saints in light. It is obtainable, people. So many things in the Word are very clear. His will is that you be sanctified. His will is that you live in peace with all men as much as lies in you. Impossible. His will is that you not be bitter. His will is that you reckon the old man dead. His will is that you put on the new mind. His will is that you make sure your mouth speaks things that are going to be edifying, not things that are destructive. His will is that you walk by faith. His will is that you don't make provision for the flesh. His will is that you give all glory to him. Should I keep going? There's so many things. You can know his will, and so can I. The Bible teaches us that the believer is to be with the mind of understanding that he and she is a soldier fitted for spiritual warfare and able to be victorious. Paul the Apostle in Romans 8, 37, and again to the Philippians in 4, 13 says this, We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Through Christ. Don't forget that word. Through Christ. Then he says, I can do all things through Christ, Jesus, who strengthens me. All those things that God calls me to do, he will enable me. He is not the author of confusion. He never allows me to test it more than I'm able, but with every test, he show me the way of escape. He is so faithful. He is so faithful. 
These are the details of the prophecy. Now, if the God we serve is such a particular God in detail and so faithful to those details, does it not serve as wisdom to serve Him? Is it not sheer folly and stupidity to not serve Him or obey Him? Of course it is. Now, we understand that clearly here, but it has to be put to practice where the rubber meets the road when you're with your wife and you don't necessarily feel passionate for her, you know, and you feel more like saying something that's not very nice or, or, or just walking out. When, when something happens and all of a sudden you don't want to act like a Christian, that, that's where, where the times of testing come. Notice, secondly, the decisive victory of the prophecy is given to us in verse 2 and 3. First of all, in verse 2, God would go before Cyrus to ensure the conquest. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. Now, the figurative language is common in the scripture. We read this kind of language all the time. The meaning is that God would go preparing the way for Cyrus to make the conquest easier with less obstacles. It would be God. He wanted Cyrus to know this. He says, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut up the bars of iron. Now, according to Herodotus, the historian, the gates of Babylon were of solid brass and a hundred in number. Gates represent always in the scriptures security, safety to a city. And where there's no gates then there's no security, there's no safety for the people. And God would demonstrate to Babylon that the arm of flesh at its best is clay in the hands of God. That's good. The arm of flesh at best is clay in the hands of God. We come over there, he goes, oh yeah, here, go, go. Bring me something else. <laughs> Interesting. Keep in mind that this is around 712 B.C., this would not take place till 539 B.C. 539. Calling the guy out by name, giving the details, speaking about a power that is not even yet a power. Assyria is the power at this time. Remember, we've been talking about it. Assyria was the rod of God's wrath. Israel was trying to depend on Egypt. He says, don't trust in the arm of flesh of Egypt. Assyria is my instrument. And yet he's talking about a power that's going to be destroyed before it's even a power. How interesting. Later on in chapter 46 and 47, the devastation is described in a little more detail uh, against the gods and against the people. Now, this would be in fulfillment of the dream God gave to Nebuchadnezzar regarding the kingdoms of the world. In chapter 2 of Daniel and chapter 7, the only difference between the two chapters is chapter 2 is the kingdoms as man sees them. Man sees himself in chapter 2, the head of gold, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, absolute ruler, none like him, wealthy like no other. But then he says, because the astrologers and necromancers and all the soothsayers could not get, reveal the dream, and they say, well, no, give us a dream king, and then we'll give you an interpretation. Oh, no, no, no. If you guys are who you say you are, tell me the dream and the interpretation. They couldn't do it. He said, okay, off with your heads. Daniel heard about it. He said, what's going on, Ariok? Oh, well, you know, king's, oh, you tell him, I'm going to go pray. Let me get my friends. 
Get the three Hebrew children, they pray, he goes in. God has revealed it to you. You're the head goal. No one like you. But you will be superseded by an inferior kingdom, the arms and shoulders of silver, Medo, Persia. Well, now we look back, we see that that's true in history. Now, Neb didn't like this. He wanted to be the head of gold. So in Daniel chapter 3, he erected an image of all gold, 90 feet high. That goes to show you a little bit of wealth of, of Babylon. 90 feet high in the plain of Dura. He says, everybody has to worship it. At the sound of the, of the trumpet, the drums, and so on and so forth, you bow down. If you don't, you burn in the furnace. The three Hebrew children said, listen, king, you've got it backwards. If we bow, we will burn. If we don't bow, we can never burn. And if God allows us to burn, it's okay. He's able to deliver us. No big deal. It's up to him. In chapter 4, Neb still didn't get the message after the children of Israel were delivered out of the furnace. And he's walking around Babylon and saying, Oh, this Babylon that I have built, I this and that. And the watchers from heaven said, This is it. You've crossed the line. You're going to be an animal for a couple of seasons. I'll give you some R&R. &R. <laughs> Eat some hay. Look up at the sky. And when he regained his sanity, he said, there's the God in heaven who does as he wills. And no one can say, hey, what are you doing, man? <laughs> I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. There's going to be a lot of interesting people up there that you never thought was going to be there. And then there's going to be a lot of people who you thought that were going to be there. They're not going to be there. The gates were stormed in the reign of Belshazzar. Daniel 5. We're looking at it before it even comes to pass. We have the book of Daniel that gives us the account. The 70 years of captivity were just about up, and God is going, was going to make the hit of gold history. The kingdom began with Nebuchadnezzar in 626-605 B.C. His son, Nebuchadnezzar, reigned 43 years from 602 to 562 B.C. And his son, Evil Marduk, succeeded him and reigned two years, being assassinated by Nero Gleaser, uh, his brother-in-law, in 562 to 560 B.C. And then he would restore Jehoiakim, remember, the king of Judah, from prison. Jeremiah tells us that in Jeremiah 52, 31 through 34. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for four years from 560 to 566 B.C. And his son, uh, Labishi Marduk, reigned for only nine months till he was beaten to death. And then in 556 B.C., Nabonidus was appointed king by the conspirators, and he reigned for 17 years until 539 B.C. Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus, who either married the widow of Nebuchadnezzar or the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar named Notorious. Nabonidus lived 14 of the 17 years in Timnah, a city in Arabia while Belshazzar was a co-regent king in Babylon. We know this now through archaeological digs and historical documents. You know Proverbs 29:1 says, He that being often reproved hardens his neck, he shall suddenly be destroyed now without a remedy. God is so patient with us, and yet there are people who fight against God so hard outside the church and inside the church.
both places. Pastor Xavier Reese and the ongoing battle for authority, along with the importance of surrender. There's still more to come next time. Now, if you won't be able to join us, though, here's the next best thing. You can pick up a copy of this message on CD for only $4. And the title to ask for is Cyrus, God's Chosen Instrument. And make sure you pass on this study to someone in your church or Bible study when you're through listening. Now, once again, the title to ask for is Cyrus, God's Chosen Instrument. Or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for telling us the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This really helps us track the effectiveness of this outreach in your area. Other religions may claim to have a handle on the truth, but in our next study, Pastor Xavier Reese points to the evidence for the one true God. That's right here on Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California, www.calvarychapelpasadena.com.